0: Well, good morning. It has been a really good morning. I've been encouraged just by sharing the word. So thank you for all of you who shared. I mean, it's already speaking to me. It's been so good to be here. Um, But welcome, especially if it's your first time, whether you're in the room or you're tuning in online. Thanks for spending your morning here with us. We wanna welcome you here. Um, Here at Austin Oaks Church, we are all about Jesus. And everything that we do is so that you can meet, know, and follow him. Uh, we believe that that is what the Bible teaches for us to do, for, to share Jesus. Uh, we believe the Bible is, is God's word that he's spoken to us. And that's our mission, to, to help others to meet, know, and follow Jesus collectively as a church, but also in our individual lives as well. So my name is Josh, I'm on staff here at the church and I get the honor and the privilege to share a story with you guys out of Luke chapter five today. Um, And stories are powerful things. Uh, It's hard to even uh, distance ourselves from what a story is because they're so ubiquitous, right? They're all around us. It's kind of like asking, what does air smell like? I don't know, I've been breathing my entire life. Um, But it's the way that we think. We frame our very lives in stories, right? We think about where we've been in our lives. We think about where we're going. And sometimes that can motivate us, right, to uh, say no to the donut at breakfast, to say yes to the gym, something like that. Because the story that we tell ourselves is that's not who I am and who I want to be. The end of my story is someone who doesn't do those things, right? We understand the world around us in the stories that are told. And even culture can be communicated through stories, right? I think about the stories that have um, been with us for thousands of years, right? So Forgive me, I'm going to be a little nerdy here, but I think about something like Homer's stories, right? The Odyssey and the Iliad and how that communicates to us what the Greeks and the Romans valued and how they saw themselves as building upon previous cultures, right? We think of other stories that um, have, pa- have been passed down through time, have stood the test of time, like King Arthur and the legends of, that, that teach us about chivalry. They teach us about who we ought to be, how we ought to use our strength. But there's stories that also teach us about betrayal, right? I think of Shakespeare and Julius Caesar. Uh, Shakespeare teaches us about the hazards of love as well. Uh, and then, do you think about modern stories, and my mind immediately goes to something like Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, whether it's the book or whether it's the movies, it's kind of captured the culture in a special way. And we imbue these stories with our own values, right? That we, we love Lord of the Rings because it shows how these small seemingly insignificant people bring hope to the entire world and, and hold back the tide of evil that's coming. And then even uh, in a hyper-modern context, I think of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right? Anyone seen WandaVision yet? I haven't, so don't spoil it for me. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to find the time to do that. But I've heard it's good. Um, but you think about these movies or comic books, forgive me, I know of them as movies. Uh, But you think about, it's a few dozen movies telling this grand story. And we introduce superheroes as these characters who have these special powers. But it's not the powers in themselves that we're captivated by, right? It's the situations that they're put in and how they use those powers and how they overcome, right? How they show us what strength looks like when uh, they're faced with adversity The things that we love about those superheroes is that they can overcome. They can show us the way. And in a way, this distance that we create with these stories is really not the part that we enjoy about them. What we enjoy the most, what's most powerful is when we enter into these stories, right? We don't like unrelatable characters. We want to be able to put ourselves in these stories so that we can see what they're teaching us, so that we can be a part of that dilemma. We can stem the tide against evil, right? And we can become better because of it. Stories are most powerful when we enter into them. And that's what I'd encourage you to do here this morning. As we look to this story in Luke chapter 4, it's, it's going to be a short five verses, but there's so much here, and I think there's so much more to see if we try and put ourselves in the shoes of the different characters. There's going to be three main characters. Of course, Jesus is one of the main characters here, um, but then we have two other groups of characters that this story really comes alive when we put ourselves in their shoes. And It can impact our lives. So let's go ahead and read this story out of Luke chapter 5. We're starting in verse 27. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, we pray that it would come alive. God, we are helpless to understand if your Holy Spirit is not teaching us, So we ask that you would do that, that we would glorify you, that we would love you more and show your love to others. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's something special about this story compared to the other stories that I've brought up already. And that's frankly that it's true, right? This actually happened. But we also have to realize that Luke put this story in his gospel as a a bit of a vignette. He's trying to paint a picture of who Jesus was and what he did in his life. He doesn't, Luke is not detailing every single little thing that Jesus did. Luke is picking out specific stories that teach us about who Jesus is, something very specific about Jesus' life, right? We've talked about how Luke is writing this gospel to a a Roman named uh, Theophilus, and he's explaining What Jesus did when he came to earth and how he interacted with people and how we ought to uh, be changed and transformed because of that, right? So this story starts off with after this Jesus went out. So last week, if you weren't here, um, it was the story of the paralytic and his friends uh, and Jesus was amazed by the faith of the paralytic's friends and he forgave this man of his sins and then he healed his sickness Right? He caused him to walk again and go out. So after these things, right, we've seen Jesus as this one who is able to forgive sins. We've seen him as this person who's able to heal our infirmities. Now after this, it says that Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Okay, so if you've read the Gospels, if you've grown up in church, if you know anything about the New Testament, um, you probably know that people don't like tax collectors. And I mean, it's kind of obvious if you haven't read the Bible before, like who likes paying their taxes, right? It's tax season. I mean, are you enjoying that? Um, But it's more than that. It's more than that here at this time. Because tax collectors weren't just taking money from people, but they were actually seen as traitors to their very own people. See, at this period when this was written, Israel, the Jewish people, were in exile, right? God had promised them a land. They were in that land. They sinned, and God took them away from that. They were in exile. And right now, Rome ruled over the Jewish people, okay? So because Israel was in exile, they were subjugated by Rome, they were longing for the promised land. And if salvation to them, a right relationship with God, meant returning to that promised land, then Rome was this figurehead of evil that stood in their way, right? And so collecting taxes was a reminder that Israel was not where it ought to be, that Israel had sinned, and, it, and that they were in exile. Well, even further than that, the way that the Roman tax system worked, it's kind of ingenious, but it's very devious. Um, it wasn't like today where we have a tax code, as complicated as it is. You can kind of figure out how much you owe in taxes. No, at this time, Rome basically decided that each province pays a certain amount of money. They'd send their officials there, and then they would hire people within that province. I say hire, but those people who were hired, as tax collectors, actually had to bid for the position. They had to pay Rome to become tax collectors. Why would they pay to do work? Well, it's because those tax collectors then had to collect X amount of money to give to Rome, but they were the ones who went to the people and told them how much they owed. And the people were powerless to disagree. It was basically arbitrary. However much the tax collector told you you had to pay was how much you had to pay. And it was a lie. this whole system was a lie that was agreed upon so that the tax collectors could make money off the top. And so that Rome would continue ruling over its provinces. So these tax collectors were extorting their very own people. Right? They were actually going after, they were, they, they were predators, they were taking advantage of the lower class in their own time for their own financial gain. Their very own people they were exploiting. Right? And I can't help but think, this man is named Levi. He actually has another name as well. We'll get to that in just a second. But here it calls this tax collector. His name is Levi. And if you know about the Israelites and their history, the the 12 tribes of Israel, out of all of those 12 tribes, there was one that was singled out to be priests to God, and those were the Levites. Okay, it was the the forefather of that tribe. His name was Levi. So this man is named Levi. And, And priests were the people who went to God on behalf of the people and go to the people on behalf of God. So I can't help but think this man who was taking advantage, he was extorting his very own people, reminding them that Rome was ruling over them, taking from them. He was a traitor to his own people, His very name, day in and day out, when his friends talked to him, was a reminder that he's not who he should be. Right, his name meant the one who goes before God. But instead, his life was built upon preying upon other people, taking advantage of other people. And he sought that out, right? He was the one who paid Rome for the ability to become a tax collector. So there was good reason for the Jewish people to hate this kind of person. He made a living off of stealing from his own people. So with all that in mind, that's pretty amazing. What does Jesus do? How does Jesus treat this man? It says that Jesus went out and saw this tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, right? Jesus doesn't wait for Levi to come to him Jesus goes directly to where Levi is, in his place of business, the place where he was actively extorting people, right? So if we put ourselves in this story, let's let's put on Levi's shoes. You see Jesus walking towards you. What's going through your head? Great, another teacher of the law, he's here to tell me how horrible I am. Okay, great, well, let's see how much you owe Because Levi knew, look, he had vied for this position. Levi knew that he was a scumbag, right? He didn't have very many friends. His friends were other tax collectors, right? He was rich, but it had a high social cost. But Jesus doesn't start the conversation with that. Jesus looks on Levi with compassion. He didn't condemn him. He didn't walk up to him and call him out on everything that he was doing there at his tax booth. No, Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. He invited him in, right? Follow me in what I am doing here. And what's amazing is that this Levi didn't just become one of the many people who came to see Jesus's miracles, right? To eat the bread. He wasn't just one of those people. No, Levi's, the other name that you might know him by is Matthew. He was one of the 12 closest people to Jesus during his ministry. He was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. This same Matthew was the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. He teaches us today who Jesus was. This man was changed by this interaction from Jesus Right? He was a disciple and the writer of a gospel and, and what he did echoes down even today as we read his gospel and learn about Jesus because Jesus is in the business of redemption. Right? He brings what's dead alive again. And I can't help but think you know, today is Palm Sunday as we reflect back as we have during this service about how the crowds rejoiced when Jesus entered in saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise to God. But Jesus knew as he looked around and saw those people that they were the very same people who next week would be crying out for his crucifixion, right? Jesus looks upon those people just as he did to Levi with compassion and he says, follow me. And Jesus speaks the same word to us here today. Follow me. Just as he said to Matthew, he says to us, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've betrayed. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. It doesn't matter if you have built your entire life on the things that you know to be wrong you are never too far gone jesus looks on you with compassion invites you in and says follow me right the power of this story is recognizing the shame and the guilt that levi held on to within that line of work and putting ourselves In his shoes. I know my own sins. I know those things that I can't seem to get free of. I know the ways in which I have taken advantage of other people. I'm just like Levi. But Jesus initiates that relationship, He meets us where we are and says, Follow me. Right? And how does Matthew now respond? Huh? When when he hears the call, it says that he leaves everything behind, and he rose up and followed Jesus. Right. Once he knew Jesus, once he followed, once he met, know and followed Jesus, he leaves everything behind. He says, "Jesus, you are worth it all. All this sin, everything I've built my life on, is nothing." you are so worth it, all that I have, right? He gives up his previous life to follow Jesus. And then what does he do? He throws a party. He throws a party to invite all of his friends, those very same friends who are probably wondering why he would have given up his position that he had bought himself, right? But think about how, Matthew. Levi's processing these things, okay? Now I know Jesus. He's given me freedom from these things. Well, what, what can I do? I got to tell all my friends, right? Because if they only know what I know, if they only know who I know, if I could just get them in a room with Jesus, they can see how wonderful he is, they can let go of their sin and follow him as well. And so he hatches up this plan, right? I'm gonna throw a party. I'm gonna invite all my friends. They're gonna see Jesus. They're gonna meet him and know him. They're gonna to come to follow him just like I am. He's passionately pursuing his friends because he wants them to know Jesus as well. And he creates this opportunity in which they can know Jesus, right? He creates this party He invites Jesus out, so his friends are there, his tax collector friends, he's there. Jesus is there with his disciples, and he is anxiously anticipating what's gonna happen when they meet this Jesus, right? But who else is there? Well, there's this other group of people that it talks about, the Pharisees. So in the midst of this great opportunity of people to meet Jesus, the Pharisees are disgusted what's going on right Jesus don't you know who these people are they're the ones who are taking advantage of us right they're the traitors what are you doing here how can you associate with people like that and if you think that that's overly harsh well you're absolutely right but we also have to recognize who these Pharisees were okay Um, again, if you've read the New Testament, you kind of get the idea that they're generally the bad guys. (laughs) They're there to pick a fight with Jesus. But let's hold it for just a second on all that baggage that we bring with us to this. Um, Because we also have to understand that the Pharisees were leaders within the synagogue, the Jewish church, right? So they were high up there. And they knew their Bibles like you wouldn't believe, Okay, I don't know the validity of this story, but I had heard that in order to become a Pharisee that they knew their scriptures so well that if they pulled out one of the scrolls of the Old Testament and stuck a knife through it, that they'd be able to tell you every single word that that knife pierced through. That's how well they knew the scriptures. And they were the ones who were holding the line while the Jews assimilated into the Roman culture. We understand there's a lot of things that the Romans did that were sinful. But these people, the Pharisees, were holding the scriptures tightly, telling the people about what God has said, what his law is, right? And not only that, they backed up their words with their very lives, okay? They were the moral authority. They were the strict law keepers of their day. I don't know if you're into productivity and life hacks and things like that. I Am a little bit. I enjoy those types of things. Uh, But when you think about these people, it's actually kind of inspiring the way that they were able to discipline themselves to hold fast while the rest of the culture threw it out. Right? They held to the Old Testament law. They held to the laws that were placed around it so that you didn't even get close. Right? But when I look at the way that they respond, I, I can't help but think of Revelation chapter 2 jesus talks to the church in ephesus and he says starting in verse 2 i know your works and your toil and your patient endurance how you can't bear with those who are evil but attested those who call themselves apostles and aren't and found them to be false i know how you're enduringly patiently enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and how you haven't grown weary but i have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Right, these Pharisees held to God's law, but forgot why it was even given. They forgot that it was to show who God was. They forgot about God's love, and instead held tightly to these rules. And so in this scene, they're there at the party, okay? They come to Jesus and his disciples. And I can just imagine, they're fuming, right? Jesus, how can you be friends with these kinds of people? They're actively leading our people away. They're actively sinning. We know the law, right? We have worked hard to keep ourselves pure. And these are the types of people who are leading us away, how can you associate with these people, right? How can you be friends with these people who support these types of governmental policies? Does that sound familiar? As, as I was reading and studying this this week, um, God made this real to me in a way that I was not sure that I was going to share this morning, um, but here goes. So earlier this week, um, a friend of mine, I'd known him since high school. We went to church together, and uh, years ago, he, he left the church. And earlier this week, he announced that he was starting a new business venture. Right? He was going to make some money uh, in an industry that involves sexual sin and leading people into that as well. And my first reaction when I saw that was, I was repulsed, okay? And I kept thinking, I was like, is is this it? Is this the moment when I'm gonna kinda have to cut him off? Like, we can't be friends anymore. I don't wanna hear about that. I'll stop for just a second. Imagine if he came through that door what would we say? How would we treat him? As I thought about this more, the Holy Spirit convicted me. Because I wasn't heartbroken over his sin, right? I didn't look on him with compassion. I didn't say, oh, if he knew Jesus, he could know freedom from his sin, right? He could leave that behind. Oh, how he needs Jesus. How he needs to know who I know. I came to the realization, God made it clear to me, that I am so much more like these Pharisees than I want to admit. Than I want to admit to you guys, that I even want to admit to myself. Right? I don't want to picture myself as the Pharisee. When I construct the story of my life, that's not who I want to be. When I read this story, I don't want to put on their shoes. I'm, I'm more comfortable even as the sinner, right? Because Jesus comes in compassion towards the sinner. Pharisees are jerks. In my story... When I write my story, I want to be the hero, right? I want to be the one who's strong. I want to be the one through adversity who presses forward, who inspires other people. That's who I want to be. But when I look to this, I see I'm that Pharisee. I'm that sinner. I'm that tax collector. The hero of this story is Jesus, right? Right? And When we put ourselves in the story, we have to be careful, okay? We can't say that we are the hero. We, we so often read these stories of Jesus, and we want to be just like Jesus, and that's a good thing, but we can't be Jesus. We can't offer salvation. We can't hold other people up by our own strength. But if we are followers of Jesus, then when we see him and we see his heart, we see his love for others, we want to be like him. Right? We want to do the things that he does. And what's his response? His response to these Pharisees who are disgusted at what's happening is that I have not come, or excuse me, I have come for the sinners. I haven't come for the righteous. Right? For you who are holding on to what you've done, the life that you've lived, to you who say that I can follow the laws of God, I'm good how I am, I don't need your salvation. I haven't come for you. You don't need help on your own. It's these people who are enslaved by their sin. Those are the ones that I come after. Those are the ones that I initiate a relationship with. Those are the ones that I show compassion to. Because the main issue and our greatest need, just as we talked about last week, is that we need forgiveness of our sins. Right. Jesus himself is our greatest need because he is the one who can forgive us of our sins. And so if we stand in our own righteousness, we will fall. We can't do it by ourselves. In his own sarcastic way, Jesus condemns these Pharisees. Oh, you don't need any help. <laughs> when the law was to show who God was and how great he is and how broken we are, Jesus said, that's not gonna bring salvation. I will give you salvation. Follow me. Right, and so I have felt that burden of the conviction of my sin this week in the way that I respond to people. But the wonderful thing about our God is that his conviction comes with Compassion. It comes with grace. That acknowledgement that, hey, I'm not who I want to be. I've been at this for a while, but I'm still not there. I see parts of myself that I don't want to be there. With that recognition comes the grace of God, Jesus Himself, who initiates that relationship. He enters into our sin. Extends his hand, extends compassion, and says, follow me. He's compassionate to the sinful. So I can't help but think what our church would look like if we lived this way. If we are following Jesus, if our call is to meet, know, and follow him, to do the things that he did, what would it look like for us to initiate those relationships, for us to extend compassion, not start the conversation off with condemnation, but with an invitation, right? Come know Jesus. Come follow Jesus. And you will leave everything behind because he is so worth all of it, your entire life. What would this church look like, a room filled with people like this? What would your life look like if you were the one to go into those situations, right? What would your life look like tomorrow morning, Monday morning? You wake up, you make your coffee, you brush your teeth, take a shower, whatever your routine is in the morning. You get to work, you see your coworker. How can I create an opportunity to show them Jesus so that they can meet him and know him and follow him, have freedom, A couple weeks ago, Brandon talked about how the leadership of our church has been given a vision for 500 baptisms by 2025. And if you were with us last week, we were able to um, have some baptisms in the courtyard and it was awesome. It was so encouraging to be there, to see 14 people get baptized in this picture going from death into life and to have the church together cheering on Those who are baptized, as if to say, you're a part of our family, right? We're in this together. We are unified. You are made new in Christ, just like me. I was that person. I was dead in my sin, and now I'm alive. But how are we gonna get to 500 baptisms? What does that mean? What does that mean for you, for me, tomorrow, tomorrow? I have to wrestle with that. Where do I need to change for that to happen? How can I create these same opportunities that Matthew did so that people can meet Jesus? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the Bible, for your word, that you speak through it that you teach us who you are, that you teach us your kindness, your love, your grace, and you show us the way you have gone before us. Lord, I pray that we would respond to this call, that you would show us individually how we are to change, how we are to arrange our lives to create these opportunities for others how we can be the ones who initiate these relationships, who show compassion, who cause others to meet, to know, and to follow you. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to do that. It's only in your strength that you give. Thank you for the grace that you pour out on us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.